these garbage cans and everything. I might have got cold feet. I might have let that woman go. Yes, I don't love you no more. I don't love you no more. I don't love you no more. I got no Of the finest musical acts of our time. Who it is? 
Wednesday, October 14th, at Harbor Brewing Company at 9 p.m. It's a WCBN double feature with The Tammy Show and The Big TNT Show. Don't forget, it's free. T. Hetzel, you've got living writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor today in the studio. I'm so pleased to have Crystal Williams here. Um, Crystal, welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, well, it's great to see you here. Um, and Crystal is in town, um, a visiting writer, a visiting poet um, and playwright. Yes. Right. Um, tomorrow, Crystal will be reading at the Helmut Stern Auditorium at UMA at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. Uh, that's Thursday, October 8th at 5.15 p.m. So mark that on the calendar. And um, and today we're in luck because Crystal's going to also read us a few poems um, that you probably won't be hearing tomorrow at the, at the theater. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see what happens. Twice. <laughs> no, no. Um, Crystal's got three books uh, and new work to choose from. So, yeah, we only have an hour, Crystal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I won't. I won't keep you here forever. I promise. Um, I'll just read your short bio um, from the book Troubled Tongues, your latest um, winner of the 2009 Naomi Long Magic Poetry Award, published by Lotus. Born in 1970, Crystal Williams was raised in Detroit, Michigan, and Madrid, Spain. She attended Wayne State and Howard Universities, where she studied acting before dropping out of school to more seriously pursue a theater career in New York City. There, Williams began her formal involvement with poetry at the New Yorican Poets Cafe, finding in SLAM a complementary synthesis between writing and performance. She's a member of the 1995 New York Slam team. She went on to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree at New York University and a Master of Fine Arts at Cornell. She's currently Associate Professor at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and divides her time between Portland and Chicago, Illinois. 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 Oh, Illinois. Dear. Somebody got after me about that. I know. You know, I haven't said that in a long time. I always mispronounce wherever I go, like the, the river. The Willamette River Willamette. in in Oregon, yep, right? right. Um, I called it the Willamette the first oh, time. Does. <laughs> so well, at least you say Oregon and not Oregon. Oregon, yeah, <laughs> that's true. You got to kind of swallow it, right? Oregon. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, so you've kind of crisscrossed around the country. You've gone across the pond to Madrid as well. Um, I have been around. Yeah, <laughs> but you started. The, oh, Detroit. so lucky for us in yes. Detroit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what was it like for, 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 did you know you were a young poet when you were in Detroit? No. You know, I, um, 
I went to Cass Tech and studied um, drama. I was in the performing arts kind of program there. Uh, learned to play the harp. Was part of the, I don't know what the performing arts society culture. I did a lot of forensics and et cetera. So, uh, and never was really thinking about poetry at all, except for the fact that I had an English teacher named Mrs. Arthur E. Leach, who... <laughs> um, Leach. Leach, right. And oh, she, so and a shout out. She, she's in California. She's wonderful. And, um, and she uh, had us write a poem as part of, I don't know, it was a exercise or homework, whatever, right? And so I wrote a poem, The Exquisite Darkness, The Exquisite Beauty My Darkness Beholds, or I don't know, it was some wow. really well, awful were line. You, <laughs> were you modeling it from Shakespeare? Or what no, were you? <laughs> I wasn't. I just, it sounded good to me. And so... Well, and exquisite. I don't, yeah. The word exquisite what? was a good word. And so she read, she thought that the poem was a decent poem and had me read it aloud. And after that moment, I started reading kind of you know, writing little private poems. Um, in notebooks or? Oh, or yeah. How did you, yeah. Yeah, I was writing in notebooks and um, and literally just didn't have any sense that there were poets in the world. Although I, I would go to the, our library and scour the shelves for black poets in particular. So I found like Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez. I found all those black arts movement poets. And the broad, the the broad, broad street press. Broadside press, broad, that's broad right. Broad side press. Right, mm -hmm. oh. Dudley Randall and um, Naomi Long was part of that whole series. And so, um, and you know, a lot of really famous authors came through Broadside. So, is that right? Is that, I think it's broadside. So anyway, um, I found poetry that way, but it just was not a career that I thought really existed as a, a way of being. So um, when I got to D.C. You mean as a career as in money or just as a like a vocation? As a vocation. Right. Like I had no sense that we didn't have writers in the schools at that at that time. There was there were no poets coming to talk to us about like how to be a poet in the world. So I was just doing these little poems on my own. And when I got to Washington, D.C., and was broke, a friend of mine started throwing these talent shows and the grand prize for the talent shows was $100. And because I was so broke, I was writing what I considered to be dramatic monologues because I was in theater. And so I would go to these talent shows and perform <laughs> what he was calling poems and I was saying, no, no. And I would win the $100 or, you know, whatever, and so that was the beginning of it, really. And when I moved up to New York to work with an acting coach, uh, I found my way over to the New Eurekan Poets Cafe, which is on the Lower East Side, and was still reading what I thought of as dramatic monologues. Um, and slowly got into performance poetry and slam. Um, what did you find that was the bridge? Like, was there any sort of significant change that you did between these dramatic monologues and and performance poetry and then into slam like is there uh, gradations or i think there are gradations for me there weren't that many gradations really because i think that the dramatic model i mean a good dramatic monologue is employs a lot of the same tools that a good poem employs right um the use of metaphor the use of simile 
a strong rhetorical argument, a good story. So all of that stuff um, was going into poems. The the amount of lyricism, um, I think, that is in my work now is very different than the work that I was producing then, although... I've always had a really strong ear, but that me and my father was a jazz pianist. And so there was, I grew up with jazz in the house. And so there's a kind of music that happens in my head. And so I think that I was bringing that musicality to these dramatic monologues. And um, the the real difference is that in slam, um, your poem, you have up to three minutes, which is a really long poem. I mean, it's like a three-page poem. <laughs> a three-minute poem is a three-page poem, essentially. So that's a lot of time to fill up. Um, that's really the, the only difference. What I found is over time, I was less interested in filling up that much space, right? Like that I started working more metaphorically, more lyrically. And shorter. And You're, much this, shorter. The real estate of these poems is, is very, it's, it's often just a page or, or a piece of a page. Yeah, yeah. And um, my impulse is to condense um, and increasingly so. And the poets that I tend to prefer are people who write very short poems and who work um, metaphorically because I, I like to think metaphorically. And so um, I've been working now on writing longer poems because it's not my preference to read them. And so it's like a challenge. And a friend of mine um, said that, you know, he thought that longer poems were probably where I was going to be going. And he said it just at a time when I started to write longer poems as a challenge to myself. So I kind of took those to the serendipity yeah. of that. Yeah, I was like, right. struck you. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I'll get to it. I can write a long poem. <laughs> so you know, that's what I'm fiddling around with now: longer poems. And so that'll. Do you feel a project forming with that crystal as well? Like, for, are you seeing like another book coming out of this, or is it just are there poems in the world right now? Yeah, the poems that I'm well. The next book will probably be a collection of poems about Detroit. So, because I've been, I'm on sabbatical, and um, the poems that I have been writing have been poems about Detroit. I haven't been back in Detroit for an extended period of time since 1990. Um, And I find it to be an extraordinary city. Uh, were you able to write about it when you were gone, when you were in Madrid or when you were in D.C., New York, Portland, um, Chicago? N- yeah, no. Uh, well, I was in Madrid when I was a child, right? So I wasn't writing. Right. Um, I, no, I, I didn't think about Detroit. It's only been in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years that I've really come to understand what being from Detroit means to me and my identity. And I really am a Detroiter. Like I am pretty flat footed. I think of Detroiters as being flat footed. What do you um, mean? What do I mean by flat footed? Um, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Uh, if I, you know, you say, let's go to dinner, we figure out a time, um, which I find not to be actually the case in a lot of different other, you know, kinds of places. Portland folks aren't as flat footed as Midwesterners. Right. And I am from the industrial Midwest. And so, so it's something about the Midwest, but what makes it particularly Detroit? Well, I I do think that there is a, a strain of Southern-ness in Detroit that I find really lovely. Uh, We used to call when I was growing up Detroit, 
um, Little Alabama. And my father, <laughs> because, you know, folks came directly north f- to work in the car industry. And so there is an inordinate um, community of people in Detroit who have direct ties to Alabama. And so when you have that many people from a particular place, another region, another it's, region, it's group, yeah, yeah, you it's kind of like you're like an immigrant community. And so, I mean, it's a really interesting. So I was just down in Alabama earlier in the year and um I, it felt very much like home to me, which was very odd. Like, I thought, that's really odd. Now that sweet home Alabama song, you'll be turning that up on the radio, <laughs> <Yeah>. Crystal? <laughs> I mean, I just, there is a kind of come on into my house and eat. And there's a kind of generosity that happens, I find, in Detroit that um, reminds me very much of the kind of generosity I found down in Alabama, and um, which it may not be specific to Alabama. It's true. Like my knowledge of the South is very limited, but um, my sense of Detroit is, is that it is a very particular place. I mean, having grown up there, um, you know, almost so many people had jobs. It was a very middle class because so many people were working in the car industry and people, you could make a good living without having much, you know, education, just be, you know, working with your hands. And, and to being dedicated to something you, you, spend your life doing working in that industry that's exactly right and um so i i I don't know there are other things that are specific to detroit but um that kind of flat-footedness that the warmth and openness um and and, uh, um there's also a kind of um, honesty, which I find very compelling about Detroiters. You know, we'll tell you what we think. We don't mean to be malicious, <laughs> but we will tell you. You will always know. And that just that doesn't always happen out in the Pacific Northwest. It rarely happens in the Pacific Northwest, which is, you know, neither good nor bad in the scheme of things. It's, it's just different. what it's different. And it's what I'm accustomed to is, I mean, y- you know, my friends would probably say to you, you always know where Crystal is. And I attribute that to being from the industrial Midwest. So, And being a poet that's looking for some some truth. Yeah, maybe, although I have friends who are poets that claim to be looking for some truth, and you never know what they're <laughs> thinking about. <laughs> well, let's take a short break yeah. before we um, implicate anyone. Right? Yeah. Um, today on Living Writers, you've got Crystal Williams here, her latest book, Troubled, uh, Troubled Tongues. Apparently my tongue's troubled, but in a different way. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back. Everyone knows him as old folks Like the seasons he'll come and he'll go Just as free as a bird And as good as his word That's why everybody loves him so. Always leaving his spoon in his coffee. Tucks his napkin up under his chin. 
and his yellow car pipe. It's so mellow, it's right. But you needn't be ashamed of him. Every Friday, he'll go fishing way down on Buzzard's Bay. But he only hooks a perch or two. A whale got away. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, today on the program, Crystal Williams, her latest poetry collection, Troubled Tongues, out with Lotus. Um, also, I'd like to say thanks to Brian Delaney for being in the engineering chair. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> and Crystal, thanks for bringing the music, choosing the music for the program. Oh, um, yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about that last song? That last song was Carmen McRae singing Old Folks, which I just love that song. I just love it. It reminds me of my father, who um, was born in Alabama in 1907. So he would have been, had he lived, 102. Yeah. Yeah, it was. He was an amazing man. So, um, yeah. did did he live longer than your your mother, Crystal? Or because you mentioned your mother in troubled tongues, there's a poem for her. Right. You know, yeah. No, my father um, died in 1981, um, in his 70s, and he was significantly older than my mom. He was 30 years her senior, and she died in 2000, um, and she was 63 when she died. So, yeah, she was way too young. To, that was shocking. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, cancer doesn't really care no. how old you are. No, yeah, it doesn't, yeah. does it? No. Mm-mm. So, um, yeah, so that's what that song was. It reminds me of my dad. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a lovely song. It's a gorgeous song. And Carmen McRae is just a really gorgeous singer. So um, there's something about I grew up listening to my father sing and play the piano in the house, which is how he met my mom. He met my mom at a jazz club in Detroit called The Famous Door. Is it still there? No. Crystal? Mm-mm. No. Oh, no. I know. Still? I know. It's a, it's a great... It sounds like, iconic, too. Like something that should still be standing. It does. And it also sounds very much like a book. Like the, the title <laughs> of a book, The Famous Door. I don't know. but um, God, that might be your, your collection, your Detroit collection, then. Well, you know, it's interesting. I started this working title called um, I'm, uh, Walking the Cemetery um, because um, I, I take long walks in the morning and the cemetery is a really wonderful place to walk. Uh, it's very peaceful. But also Detroit seems to me very much um, a cemetery. There's there's a lot of death happening, um, but more for me, memories and death, um, but also life, right? Like that the, um, the just the, the, the natural world is um, so present. Um, in Detroit at this moment. The other day I was driving down the John C. Lodge freeway and a pheasant (laughs) flew across, literally like in front of my car and landed on the, there was a kind of a grassy, like a median kind of thing. I just thought, 
That is stunning. It's right. a stunning development. Right. Usually people are traveling out to even other states to go find their pheasants in some way. <laughs> I, I just, and of course, you know, I, I'm not a particularly, um, I'm not really a natural world kind of girl, although increasingly there's a lot of natural world in my poems. And there's birds in these poems. Well, yep. And I want you to know there are a lot of birds um, in the new poems as well, um, which is interesting i'm not quite sure i gotta do you know why do you know why it's going well no i don't i don't know what it is about birds in particular there's a a poem i guess i'll read at some point um named extinction and i i was very clear about birds in that in that poem because my friend todd mcgrain who's a brilliant sculptor out of new york uh has produced a really stunning series of um birds extinct birds in these huge bronzes that are just gorgeous and he asked are they like life-size are they extinct because they were like so from like the (laughs) nice the dinosaur age oh no (laughs) where am i going with this but but they're you said they're huge so they're i'm sorry no so the birds themselves aren't huge but but the the bronzes are yeah the bronzes are um and they're actually contemporary um, they're birds who've been extinct in the last, you know, 60, 70 years, which is, you know, stunning development. And so he, we've been talking for years about the series of birds and I finally got to writing. I'm not very good with project poems. I, I, I don't respond well to those kind of impulse, like, you know, somebody says, oh, can you write a poem for, I mean, I had a terrible, um, <laughs> A friend of mine asked me to write a poem for his wedding over this summer, and he gave me a year, and the thing that I produced was appalling. It was so bad. It was really terrible. So I don't tend to do well, but, you know, Todd and I had been talking, and and, um, and so birds, those birds have emerged in part because I think that the idea of extinction is very... Um, relevant to Detroit right now, you know that like looking even at the train station. Or I was just talking to someone about the train station and 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 about Cast Tech, which, you know, they've taken the old building and it's completely open. I guess it's on the list to be demolished, and I think it's an outrage. The new school is gorgeous, but the old school is also very gorgeous, and I just wish that we could remake them. Although you know that's the romantic in me, like that that um, there's something about Chicago that I very much admire, which is that, you know, they honor their architecture. Definitely. Yeah. They honor the architecture, but there's something more, I think, significant and meaty about, um, you honor the past, the history of it, you honor the history and you make use of it and you incorporate it. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I love London, for example, right. That you can be walking down the street and you, you know, you're next to a building that's like a thousand years old. And then the next building is like two days old and I just, that intersection of old and new, I think, is so important for Whereas us. We're wiping a lot of things out, aren't we? And would, then trying to build up again. Or Yeah. I, there was a neighborhood on East Jefferson down a little past Belle Isle. Beautiful brick homes, you know, really lovely brick homes. They went through and raised them. And then they built up new homes that were supposed to approximate, like they were, <laughs> like the old homes. And I just thought... Okay, really, really, like yeah, you? it's so absurd that you think how can this actually be happening? It's so, like one of those experiences, yeah. right? Is this so? Is this like are these 
like these rev, like realizations or things that you're coming upon, Crystal, are th- is this what are are these forming the Detroit poems that you're writing now? Yeah, the, th- those are these notions about what we use, what we don't use, how how the imagination works in a city, um, one versus another the the values um the people loss right like there's so much that is being lost and yet what's interesting about that is that i come back to detroit and i'm you know on one of my morning walks and i stop on a particular corner and it's just a stupid corner and yet there's a memory on that corner that is so alive for me and so real and so the poems are really about the intersection of loss of losing and finding at the same time, right? And um, I, I find it very, I find it to be a haunting time. And I also, I had discounted until recently how important it is to be surrounded by memories and to be surrounded by people who have long memory of you. Um, and, you know, having been in Portland for such a long time where there is no memory of me at all, there's a way um, you almost forget yourself in pieces. You you remake yourself, right? Oh, like there's a kind of remaking. And it's an interesting thing. I've been thinking about um, what it means. I, I was adopted, um, and so I've been thinking about what that means. That there's no history beyond you know September 26, 1970. That is the moment in which I become. All other history, like detailed like, history, is gone. You mean genetic sort yeah. of DNA history? Yeah, but and also there's a, a kind of family history that happens, right? Like that you you take history from your mother and your father and your great aunt and your great uncle and all of that kind of stuff goes into the making of the family. And there's something spiritual that happens, I think, around that. And um, I don't. I don't have that. So, but but what about your adopted parents then? With with that um, family. So my adopted parents were brilliant. They were just brilliant parents, and I had a brilliant childhood. I, I it's it was a I keep using the word stunning. Uh, let me use extraordinary. It was an extraordinary um, childhood, a very compelling childhood, and um, I take some of their history, but I cannot take all of it. Um, there are very clear delineations, right? Like I, I have no connection to my mother's mother and I have no connection to my mother's father or um, you're shaking your head. I'm, I'm wondering why I think, um, well, th- in part because they were dead before I was born, but um, I, I, I don't know if I can answer it. it, it in a, in a way that would suggest that there are facts on the ground to which I can point, other than to say that there's Who some kind of... Who needs facts, Crystal? Yeah, I, well, not for a poet. Good Lord. Exactly. Uh, I, there's just some kind of spiritual thing that I do think that, um, that, that family, we inhabit our family, and our family inhabits us in ways that I don't know necessarily we are fully conscious of. So, so what does that mean if there's almost a ghost family like that for you? Um, well, for me, what it wh- so one of the things that I think is interesting and that I do hold very dear is the my biological family. I was one of I think five children, and I don't know who they are. 
I don't know if they're living, but I, it does make me happy to have a sense that there are people to whom I am biologically connected in the world that I don't know that are probably still in Detroit. There's probably a whole tribe of people who, to whom I belong, right, um, genetically. I, I'm not compelled to find them. Why not? Um, because I'm very much happy with who and what I am, how I came to be. Um, and I don't mean to suggest that when I say that I start on September 26, 1970, that, that, that that's a lament. Happy belated birthday, Thank by the way. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I don't know. It it's may not it's, a lament. It's not a full lament. It's just, to me, very clear when I walk down the street in Detroit that I don't, I'm not walking down the street and gathering up the memories of my family who preceded me. I'm only gathering up the memories that I have that start with me and my mom and my dad in our house on Lauder. You know, like, that's it. So, no. And in 2006, um, you had returned to Detroit to work with Inside Out with Peter Marcus. Yeah. And uh, so I read his because he wrote a, a essay like a, he d- interviewed you and mm-hmm. and Peter Marcus friend of the show here nice. as well um and and in that you said um i have tried to write a detroit poem to no avail and now oh, that's you're so here. interesting i don't remember having said that but i believe you i see that you have it there <laughs> <laughs> right. i have the evidence right here crystal um but but so I think it's it's amazing. Um, you you go directly from saying I've tried to write a Detroit poem to saying that, but I have understandings from Detroit and my father and and these images like working for Ford for thirty some years, you know, and jazz piano, you know, like these things about Detroit. Yeah. So it's so interesting that now it's it's two thousand nine, mm-hmm. and, and this and whole- now that I'm actually back with my feet on the ground. So right, there's a difference. That's right. Like there's a difference between being in one place and having this romantic sense of the thing and actually being in the thing. And so having come back, I mean, I do like my sense of what is possible um, has changed. We're going to take a short break, Crystal. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers today on the program. Crystal Williams, her book, Troubled Tongues. We'll be back. Music I hear I get misty 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, we are lucky to have Crystal Williams here in the studio, her latest poetry collection, Troubled Tongues. Um, So now, Crystal, darn it, you've written the the Detroit poems, and you're in the process of doing it, too. Yes. Which makes... Do do they feel... um, what does it feel like when you're when you're looking at these the books that you have mm-hmm. you know like you've got you've got troubled tongues here you've got lunatic kin is out there in the world mm-hmm. and then now you've got this some, a sheep of poems here as well um what what's it like when you're in this part of the process when they're starting it's almost cuz it's almost like you're making a family here with these new poems it is like making a family although um it what's interesting is i actually write towards a book so um, what does that mean? That means that I need to have a particular series of questions that I'm grappling with uh, to towards which I direct the poems. So I'm just at the beginning stages of formulating what those questions might be. Um, How many poems have you written when you you suddenly realize, oh, this is becoming a larger group of poems, or there's more to come, and it's time for the questions. So normally, I don't know, about 10 or 15. Um, And this, and you know, what's interesting is I'm still at the very beginning stages of kind of formulating an idea about a book. Um, And that idea may well change. I may get far enough into formulating those questions and realize like those questions aren't sustainable over, you know, 50 pages, which is what happened with Troubled Tongues. Could you tell us about the questions you asked in this book? Well, the Troubled Tongues started out... Because it's in sections as well. It is in sections. It was a very difficult book for me to really get my head around. How do I section it? How do I put the poems together? The book started out as an idea. I was... You know, something happens like you break up with a with a boyfriend and your friend says, oh, he's you know, he's going to regret that he's going to miss you one day or, you know, like whatever little axiom, you know, like whatever. So somebody says something to try and make you feel better. And I started thinking, well, is that true? He's not going to think about me one bit. He's just going to keep moving. Like, <laughs> he doesn't care about me. And I thought, well, why do we say these things? Right. Like, what are these kind of wives tales that we come up with? And so then I started thinking about. Okay, well, let me actually investigate what what we're doing with language when we're when we're saying to someone, you know, all the glitters ain't gold. Like, what does that actually mean? So I started thinking about that, and then I'd been thinking after my mom died very much, very acutely about um, concepts, uh, like what does hope mean, and what does beauty mean, and what happiness. does happiness mean, right? Patience, patience, all of those, and so I started kind of collecting poems, these prose poems, to do with those big concepts. And the only way I could kind of get my head around those was to write, um, yeah, persona poems, essentially, right? And um, and then 
I started thinking about, well, what would happen? And so then I realized, like, well, all of this really has to do with language and symbolism, right? Like how we construct narratives in our lives, like how human beings use those language to, to make meaning. So, and is it possible actually to, for us to fully understand one another? Aren't we more that like, isn't language by definition limited distancing distancing? That's exactly right. And so then I started thinking, well, what ha- would happen if all of these maxims and allegories and what, like they lived in a single neighborhood, like, and there was one little kid like running around the neighborhood, running into like on this block, it's the wives tales. And on that block, it's the concepts. And what would happen in his head? Like he would be like the, the bearer of the human, you know, I don't know, like just of us, like he'd be our representative. Yeah. Human soul. Yeah, that's right. Kind of running around like a knucklehead, like just kind of not very bright. (laughs) Like, I don't know what's going on. They're saying stuff again. So that's how I started thinking about troubled tongues. And, um, and so that's, that was kind of the, the foundation and then so so you're saying there's a voice though that's running through this although it's changing like like in the persona poems like it's it's like a story about a girl called happiness in a peculiar yellow dress yes that's right i'm not sure if there's a voice i I think more there's the question which is how, how how is language functioning and maybe the i mean the voice is just me right that's what i guess that's what i had thought when I read through this and so mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about because the voice is so clear it's like mm-hmm. and then I thought I, I wonder if I'm thinking of this because of your name <laughs> as well because oh, I began <laughs> to think of like some sort of like that um uh, what's that that volcanic um lake like over I think in Oregon or California Crystal Lake. oh god so it's called Crystal Lake that was the image I had with, with thinking about the voice that comes off the page here and then I thought well it also makes sense because you were involved in these dramatic monologues mm-hmm. and this performance and so that's why the voice is something that is so strong and so I can connect or you just it's a presence oh good thank uh, you that's good <laughs> that, the, that the voice is strong like that I um the second dairy questions um or arguments that I was interested in suggesting really do have to do with spiritual you know, our spiritual selves, right? That that we are actually more than our language. And that if we listen in different ways, we can hear um, great beauty and, and, um, and more truth, I think. I actually find language um, troublesome very often, which is, you know, deeply ironic. <laughs> because that's what you're language. working yeah. in. Yeah. You know, I find that people don't often say what they think um, and um, and use language to damage and harm other people. And um, and I, I'm really fascinated by this question of, you know, what is it that draws one person to another person that is beyond language? Because that's often the way I am drawn to people. Right. It's there's a kind of energetic um, connection, which I'm sure you know, there are scientists out there who will probably say, oh, no, it's not energetic. It's your nose or, you know, something else <laughs> like like whatever you smell something. I don't know. But I, I think that there is something more like I, I think that, um, you know, like my, it's interesting. My mom, when I was in there, 
house. I was a foster baby. They got me at four days old. And there was another baby in the house. And they had to really fight to keep me because there was a black family that wanted to adopt me. And my parents were, you know, interracial. And there was this big, weird age difference. And, um, And also foster parents at that point weren't able to adopt children and so they had to fight they really really had to fight because they felt some attachment to you immediately yeah and when I asked my mother like what was your deal like like why did I mean yeah exactly she said you were the one she said there was just something about you you were the one now I didn't have language I didn't have language so she was responding to something it's also true she was a child psychologist like she you know, was obsessed with intelligence. So I'm, I think she probably thought that I was a bright baby because my eyes were alert and I was looking around. But there also was something, I think, energetic. or and even if To do with your energy. That's to, what you mean. Yeah, to, something that's coming from you as like a being yes, that you are. That's right. That's so exactly a spiritual right. quality. Something spiritual. That's right. And so even, and you know what, even if that is not true, I choose to believe it. So, you know what I mean? Which is really all that I can do. Well, and that's how, if we're honest, each of us is constructing our reality. That's exactly right. I know somebody, a friend of our family, who's just chronically constructing, you know, alternate universes all the time. So, you know, we run into her alternate universes and we find ourselves in these really weird little situations where we're, we're, you know, and it's great fun. So, welcome to mine. Well, let's. Could we hear one yes. of your universes then yes. on the this on is, the page? I'm sorry, this is not a fun universe. Actually, um, this is. So we were talking earlier about birds, and we were talking about um, Detroit. So this is a poem in which those two things intersect. It's called Extinction, and the first sentence in the poem is a, a line that I've pinched from Robert Hass. Um, so friend of the show. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> uh, it's actually, this comes out of uh, his book, Praise, Extinction. All the new thinking is about loss. Like a diseased lung, the city is shutting down and the parks are first to go. The grass is long-toothed and wicked, not grass at all, mostly weeds, their tough tongues covered with trash. And the trash is all magic. It mysteriously appears and disappears. Beside it today, lovers lie, and beneath the goldfinch on its branch, lovers sit on the park bench, and another pair, oddly entwined, roll down the street, she on his lap, her head resting on his shoulder, he sitting straight in an electric blue motorized wheelchair, a bony arm cradling her back. Oliver cocks his head because they are odd. His glistening snout pokes the air as if to taste what sort of love this is, this homeless love, this dirty-in-the-grass love, this broke-down park bench, middle-of-the-empty-street love, which is all about holding on to something, I think, stroking his sweet head, which is nothing more than a long, slow song about loss, this neighborhood, love, Detroit, the purple martin overhead, the dog with his cancer, these paramours amid their abandonment. Something is always dying. Brush Park is so much like the city, it is nothing more than the city. Mansions burnt or shackled by time or remade into monuments to fortitude and foresight. 
and amid the ruins, people insistent and loving. This panorama is what life looks like in my city, where loss and cliché wear the same tight dress, where the music is exquisite and slow and nothing more than a moan on most days and then too on most nights. But these crazy lovers in the weeded grass, high on something, eyes full of magic, some wispy memory, the life before this life, the possibility of a perfect and round orange, make me happy with their surprise and stubborn-headedness. And as the wind rustles the weeds' spiky fingers, bustles a plastic bag across the street, fluffs Oliver's poodle ears, another sound begins its haunt, something lonely, something that approximates the sound of extinction, proof of an exact and impending death, an echo perhaps, a trill of the last heath hen, small avian spine gone from the earth seventy years ago, his throat coarse and quivering with need. There were people beneath him that last day, too, listening to his bleak beak bleating and bleating for a mate. How odd that these lovers in the thickets almost fool me into believing something more than the facts, that ambering history, that bleak branch. Thank you, Crystal. Thanks. Thank you. Um, and just to remind everyone, you can hear more poems tomorrow, um, live and in person. Crystal Williams will be reading at the Helmut Stern Auditorium at the University of Michigan Museum of Art at 515. That's tomorrow, Thursday, October 8th at 515 at UMA. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. <laughs> 